everybody in serial killer country my name is Brittany ransom and my name is brian joiner and this is when killers get caught a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about each week brian and i will find a true crime story that resonated with us then i discuss one well-known or lesser known killer go deep into their childhood lives methodology and most importantly how they got caught and then we'll get a little spooky and Brian will tell us something about the cryptids or the supernatural. And of course, since it's October, this is the perfect time to be afraid. <laughs> That's right. Just want to let everybody know that our Patreon is live. There are four tiers from 5 to $50 that offer exclusive BIV content for our biggest fans. You can support us by going to patreon.com slash whenkillersgetcaught or buying merch on our website at www.whenkillersgetcaught.com. And this week in true crime, so I made a TikTok video about this, but I feel like based on what you told me about last week, you remember your story about the man who was killed because the woman wanted to kiss him. Right. And I was just like, maybe, you know, there's just something in the water because this week it popped up on my feed that a professor at Mount Holyoke in Massachusetts, pled guilty to attacking her colleague. So this happened in December of 2019. Her name is Ri Hachiyanagi, and she was a art professor, and apparently she was in love with the geology professor, Lorette Savoy. Mm -hmm. And so before anything happened here, Lorette, and Re were just friends. There was never any um, like romantic inclination that came from Ray. And so Re got like broke up with somebody. And then on December 23rd, 2019, she show up, stops by Lorette's house. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I need to talk about my feelings. <laughs> and so Lorette's like, I mean, we're buddies. We're like work friends. It's okay. It's all good. And so when she invites her in, Restarts like hitting her, punching her, grabs a fire poker. How's from, this talking? <laughs> hits her with a rock, starts stabbing her with pruning shears oh that God. she got from outside. Yes. And, and 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 as she's doing this, she's yelling at her friend how much that she loves her and she wants to be with her. And you should have known that I liked you. Really? No. No. I'm calling bullshit on that. I don't care how many can I, can I just speak from like experience okay. and being a man, a dumb man, <laughs> um, who cannot take hints. You need to be upfront with your feelings if you're telling someone, if you want someone to know that you like them. Well, my thing is, you were just dating somebody, so like, how am I? How would yeah. I even know if you're with somebody else? But regardless, exactly. So Re is like, this goes on. For four hours. Four hours. Four hours she beats on her coworker. And as this is going on, Lorette's trying to like figure out like what to do. You know, how do you not escalate, de-escalate the situation? And so she starts telling Ray, no, 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 I love you too. And she just starts agreeing with her. And finally, after four hours, but here's the crazy part. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter at first. It takes hours of Lorette trying to talk her down for her to convince her to call 911. And so then Reed calls 911 and says like, oh, I came by to drop off a poinsettia at my friend's house and someone broke into the house and she's laying in a pool of blood and she's really having trouble breathing. 
Then when the police get there, she tells them that the reason why she's covered in her friend's blood is because she was holding her. Um, and the police initially believe her mm-hmm. because I don't think anybody had any idea this is what was happening. Right. And then when they, after they took Lorette to the hospital, which side note, she had like broken like eye socket. Oh my God. Yeah. Like she, she had multiple like cracked bones in her like face and hands, lacerations all over her face, puncture wounds all over her body. It was real rough. Uh, she says that she has neurological damage on her hands and uh, she also uh, has nerve damage in her face. She she'll be affected by this for the rest of her life. And the one thing that really like made me feel a little sad was that she was like, because of this, she's now added an aspect of my life that I didn't consent to. Yeah, because this will be what I'll be known for. And like the, this, she's right because we're talking about it right now. Yeah, that this is the thing that what this woman did to her was add her to the conversation of things like what we're doing right now, and that was not something she originally ever wanted. No, but who, she who did does? get one hell of an impact statement last week in court. But side note, we're going, mm-hmm. we're riding back. So the police, like they cart her off. Ray like dips, and the police check the location. They're like, there's no break in. Mm-hmm. And so then the next day, the police go to Reese's house and they like she has Lorette's keys, her eyeglasses. Like she like took things from her to have with her. Oh, my God. Um, so they arrested her. And this has been going on for two years now until last week. Wow. Yep. Until the, the week of the 21st of October. And they just decided that. Uh, well, actually, it was going to go to court. Mm. Until we uh, agreed to just plead guilty. Right. Smart. Well, so her lawyer tried to say, well, she's been a model prisoner this whole time. So we recommend five to seven years. Hell no. No. The prosecution was just like, we recommend 10 to 12 years plus three months probation plus mandatory uh mental health care <laughs> Anger and management. she is never allowed to be around miss savoy ever again ever. a perpetual just you cannot be around her ever again so the judge said that this was one of the worst uh like just cases he'd ever witnessed mm-hmm. and he spoke about like how uh lorette savoy was just really what presence of mind because had she not started trying to Talk, coerce yeah. this woman into not hurting her, she would have died. Yeah. That was going to be a murder. Yeah. You know, and if she had not had the, the fast thought to be like, no, 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 wait, wait, Ree, I have, I have unrequited feelings for you as well. This would have been a murder. And this would be a completely different thing that we are discussing right now. Yeah. Uh, the judge did side with the prosecution and she's getting the 10 to 12 years. Good. Um, Good. I say I feel bad. Like <clears throat> that's one aspect of this you don't think about. Like from now on, when you know, Ri Hachianagi is mentioned, they will always mention the woman who she harmed. Right. Yeah. Whether you want that or not. <sighs> but I was just like, this was a wild little ride that's that terrible. popped up. Yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> terrible story but i was just like talk about like a random like this isn't even a domestic violence situation Mm -hmm. this is somebody had an entire relationship with you in their brain you live rent and then attacked you for it rent free for how many years frightening to me you said two years 
rent free in her in her mind for two years. Well, it's been two years since it happened. Oh, we don't know years. how long. She oh. just said, "I've loved you for years," and you should have known while she was stabbing her. Like I said. Like I said. Thank goodness it was just garden shears and not like an actual knife. It's still garden shears. It hurt, but like it didn't like lacerate her liver and stuff as she was being stabbed. No. But they can still probably kill somebody from that force. You're probably right. She doesn't sound like she's a big lady, but yeah. Yeah. Just the nerve to be like, I found her like this. <laughs> yes. My God. I'm like, bro, if you smacked me one time and said I love you, we might be able to work by- work through that. <laughs> but for Four hours of you beating my ass? We can never work through that. I don't care if never. you love me. No. I don't love you anymore. Oh, my God. We're done. Oh, my God. But anyway, you got anything funny? Normally, you give me something funny. Nope. <laughs> I see that face. It's funny. Nobody, got, nobody died. Nobody got hurt. <clears throat> so, a 43-year-old woman mm-hmm. uh, is, suspe- is suspected on burglary in California. Okay. So, <laughs> I got to leave you with that pause. I can't do it. it. Also, I... side note, someone wrote in our, uh, <laughs> whoever you are, listener, uh, I forget your name offhand right now, but I got the comment today. It popped up in my, my email that Brian's pauses make her feel anxious. <laughs> like, I... She said maybe it was because she's from New York and she just wants people to get going. She said, get to the Jersey point. It's hilarious. And Brian's like, no, that's the point. The pauses are on purpose. So sorry, listener. He's going to keep taking these long pauses for dramatic effect. You I'm the that, speedy talker. That anticipation. No, she said anxiety. Patient. You're causing anxiety. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so she suspected on burglary, right? Okay. Police come to this house and, you know, there's been a report of, of a break-in. Right. And this lady comes to the door. She's like, oh, no, there's no break-in. Um, I had to call the locksmith because, you know, I forgot my keys. I lost my keys. Oh, so somebody in the neighborhood reported her as a break-in. Uh, yeah. So. Is, is, is she perhaps of the melanated variety? I'm not actually sure about that. Because that happens but, a lot. But. Hold on. Story's not done yet. Okay. So she's like, no, I called a locksmith because I lost my keys and stuff. And then like, oh, okay, blah, blah, blah. And then come to find out, this lady broke into the house. With a locksmith? With a locksmith. Nice. And then she pretended to the cops that to she was To be the homeowner. <laughs> yes. Wouldn't they check your ID or anything? They didn't check anything? I don't think they checked. Um, wow. So, okay, here's the story. It says, Officers arrived in a neighbor, a, rel- a relative of the home or the actual home orders. Um, they gave them the spare key, but it, it fit the front door's lock. So what the what the lady did is that she got the locksmith to change the locks, right, and then give her the keys for that lock, right. So then so, she was able to turn and show the cops, like, look, this is the key. Yep. This is my house. But the spare key that was actually for the house, you know, they couldn't use it anymore because she had the lock changed so the police walked around the house they saw the back doors open and they were like oh yeah 
definitely sign of, sign of a break in. Uh, the fireplace was turned on. The music was playing inside. She act, she had a whole setup. She was like, she was acting like she lived there. Now, <laughs> yes. where were the real people who owned the house? I think I don't. It doesn't say. They might have been out of town if she was able to like step in and like start trying to yeah. live there. I, they might have been on vacation because like the neighbor had the spare key to their house. So I mean, ah, so so they had somebody checking. Yeah, I don't. Need, well, my neighbors don't have the spare keys to my house. I would never give my. Spare yeah, but no. they might have the. Well, sometimes when people have pets, they'll have somebody have the spare key. But still, like even if you were leaving like for a long time, you'd be like, "Listen, just keep an eye out." Mm-hmm. You know our family. If you'll see somebody who's related to me in there, yeah, just give a little ring dang. So yeah, so she's on the second floor. Please see like some movement up there, and they're outside of the house, and they call out to her, and they're like, "Hey, can you come out? Because we know you don't live here." I don't know who you are, so come out of the house. And then when they call her out, she's like, <laughs> she's like, oh, there are two kids in the house. So I'm, I'm here with, the, with my kids and stuff, so I can't really come out. But the police search the house. No kids in the house, of course. <laughs> what? This is weird. Yeah. And then, like I said, like she, so weird. she told her, please, like, no, this is this is my house. I just got the locksmith to come change the locks because I lost my keys, so I had to get a new key. She was holding on to it, huh? Yeah. Wow. But, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what I got. It happened on Thursday night. And... Well, so that was October... I don't know what day that is. I don't know what did t- what's today. People don't know what Thursday night is. I think it's the twenty third right now. Okay. <laughs> no, so it happened on October twenty first. Okay. Oh my god! But yeah, I, I read it and I was like, "Damn, she was bold. She was like, this. No, this is my house. This is where I live. These this stuff in here is all mine now." <laughs> you know, it's not that common though. This lady uh, I follow on TikTok. This happened to her earlier this year. Mm-hmm. So she got this house like a, a while back, but it's being fixed. Mm-hmm. So she hasn't been living there, but she stops by weekly to check on things, walk around, see how the the construction is going right, and whatnot. Right. So one day she shows up and her neighbors are like, there were other people here. And so she goes and the the they these this guy literally showed up and changed the locks on her house. And then like she tried to get a locksmith to come and the locksmith was like, I don't want to be involved in this. And the cops showed up and the cops were like, you have to leave. And to like, this is her house. No, this is the guy. And the oh. guy's like, well, I'm from Morocco and I'm, I'm, I don't know what the word is. Like a, Probably. what's the word where you're like a foreign immigrant? No, it's the other thing where you're like a foreign, dig- not a dignitary or something, but essentially like ambassador, something ambassador. like that. He's not though. These are they're just making up rules. Like he had like, and the lady said that he was like quoting all these weird statutes at the cops, and the cops were just like, no, like <laughs> it's her house. She paid for it, and they're like, we sent her a letter saying that this was our ancestral land, and I'm like, buddy, oh if God. you're from Morocco, how is this house in like <laughs> Chicago? Your ancestral land. Obviously, they. <laughs> this whole it was craziness. I felt so bad for her. Oh my God. She did like 40, 50 different updates on it while she was telling the story, mm-hmm. and she was so upset. She's a nice lady, but um, like. No, it was in Jersey. There we go. I'm like, yeah, your ancestral land is in New Jersey. But um, nobody's ancestral land is New Jersey. <laughs> no, people just commute from there. 
<laughs> Listen, I can talk bad about Jersey because I live near there. Oh, Philadelphians always talk bad about Jersey. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> but yeah, it was this whole situation. And even when the, like, right when she was about to get the locks changed, the guy went inside. He put up a Moroccan flag in the window. Oh, my God. And like, then they had to like bring in a SWAT team and break down the door. And she was like, it's fine if you break down the door because I'm getting new doors put in anyway. <laughs> like, I don't care. This, please take this guy out of my house. So, like, apparently people do this. They just show up, change the locks, and hope that you haven't checked in recently. Hmm. So obviously they were like casing it and they were like, oh, well, look, the grass hasn't been cut in like a month mm-hmm. or two months. And of course it hadn't been because she didn't she hadn't moved in yet. So she didn't buy the stuff to mow the lawn. Right. And all her neighbors didn't have an actual lawnmower. They had a lawn service. Yes. And so she couldn't get with the lawn service yet. So it looked like it was abandoned to those guys. So they really tried to jump in on it. So that's a, a thing that happens in the U.S. Thank goodness. New Jersey doesn't have squatters rights. In order for you to become a squatter in Jersey, you have to be there for years. Yes. Like an abandoned. Like, like you have not- to be in an abandoned place for years yeah. to get squatters rights. And, and certain like in the U.K., it, it's like a month. I wish that wasn't a thing. But then I'm like. Maybe these people do need a home, but come on, there are other ways. Nah, to these get dudes a were trying to steal this lady's house, and I think it was on purpose because it was a black lady, and these were black men, mm-hmm. and like they were real aggressive towards her, and they were like trying to physically They're like bully her. Yeah, I don't even think they were from Morocco. Oh. I just think that they thought that like this made them like above the law and then like when they got arrested the guy was saying like i'm a i was like this the, the laws of america don't apply to me then bud go back if the laws of america don't apply to you see you later that's why he came here though because the laws don't apply to him i listen i don't understand because i'm like here's my thing like you can say the laws don't apply to you in germany but if you go to germany and cut up yeah. the law's gonna apply to you so apply, who yes. knows would i go abroad we be on our best behavior. Oh yeah, definitely. Not trying to get arrested in a foreign country. People already hate Americans, so you know. Exactly. I want everybody to meet me and be like, "Oh, she's so nice, and she was American too." Wow. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What do you got today? So, this is a long time coming, and originally this was planned to be number 40, but as I was starting to do the writing for this, it was too much to put in one episode, so I'm doing my first two-parter. Oh, snap. First two-parter. So, I've never done a two-parter before, and so we're going to be talking about Gary Ridgway, and since Gary Ridgway was a man who lived a double life, we're also going to discuss him in that double life as well. So, at Part one, which is number 39, is going to be discussing his childhood and into his adulthood, his personal relationships and things of that nature. And then part two is going to be purely the case of when we found the first murder victim in 1982 across all of the murders, the task force, the methodology in trying to find him, catching him, and then ultimately how he avoided a death sentence after he admitted to roughly 80 murders okay but uh, when gary ridgeway was caught i had recently turned 14 years old he'd spent longer than i was alive terrorizing seattle and tacoma washington uh roughly almost 20 years i remember gary ridgeway's very angry mugshot of him as an older man Mm -hmm. 
And I remember his courtroom photos when he was just like looking sad and crying at his sentencing in 2003. Uh, really, he was sad when he was listening to the impact statements from the victims' families and whatnot. Um, I remember the confession of killing so women, so many women that he lost count. And it's interesting because when he was first found, we're talking 2001, I was still cutting my teeth on Jack the Ripper and H.H. Holmes, serial killers of yesterday. It would probably be another decade for me personally before I sat down with this case and really looked into it. Um, my my main thought process before we begin, and I think you'll see what I mean here, is being shocked at just how ordinary Gary Ridgway was and still is. Uh, this is something that this year you and I have seen over and over in this podcast, mm-hmm. a very constant aspect of serial killer coverage. So for all of you who sent emails and DMs and asked me on live streams, when are you going to talk about one of the big names? That answer is now. And just like every week, we're going to start at the beginning. So Gary Leon Ridgway was born February 18th, 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah. He was the middle child and had both an older and younger brother, Thomas and Gregory. His parents were Mary Rita Steinman and Thomas Newton Ridgway. His father, Thomas, was a bus driver and also worked at a mortuary. And his mom worked at a JCPenney. Gary had a troubled childhood. Not that uncommon in serial killer lore. Mm. On the surface, no one knew anything was going on in the Ridgway household, but his parents fought a lot. Gary was frequently in the middle of things. Tom Ridgway is described as being kind of meek and mild-tempered. He didn't ever fight back, but his wife was physically abusive. She would come in and start hitting him, and he would just get up and walk somewhere else in the house instead of engaging her. Set that as the background for a childhood that hits all of the main serial killer highlights. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ridgway hits all three of the signs in the McDonald triad. So for people who don't know, the McDonald triad is a set of factors in children that are said to be predictive of violent tendencies in the future. Some people have improperly said, if these three things happen... Your kid's going to be a serial killer. And that's not fair. Right, yeah. But it is a good marker of a future of violence in general. The theory was released by a psychiatrist named J.M. McDonald in an article in the American Journal of Psychiatry called The Threat to Kill. And the triad is animal cruelty, arson, and bedwetting past childhood. It's very much a theory, but there have been small-scale studies that supported. One of the big ones was specifically John Douglas and Robert Ressler of the FBI Behavior Unit along with Dr. Ann Burgess, and they did a study on serial killers and did find a correlation between childhood patterns and predatory behavior. Like I said, it would be reckless to say these factors mean that your kid will become a killer or even a serial killer, but it's definitely something to be aware of. Right. For Gary, the first one we hit on is bedwetting into adolescence and animal torture. Uh, he also had that dominant antagonistic mother that we've seen all too often oh, this year. So recent. Wow. <laughs> so many. You know, <laughs> Leonardo Ciccioli, Augusta Gein. <laughs> Goodness gracious. There were uh, statements by Gary's second wife, and she said that to get Gary to stop talking, she would hit him with a plate. Oh. And that was when he was an adult. Gary has made claims in interviews that his mother abused all of the members of the family, including him and his brothers. 
Now, according to Gary, he says that while his father was mild-mannered, his dad had a bit of a dark side, too. Gary says that Tom is the person who introduced him to the concept of necrophilia and would tell his son how co-workers at the mortuary did inappropriate things with the bodies and even had sex with them. Like I said, so I'm going to pre- I'm going to like kind of preface this. Some of these things that we're talking about today, when you hear me say Gary said, those are coming from letters that he wrote to journalists, conversations he had with Ann Rule, Penny Wood, other uh, writers who corresponded with him. These are things from his perspective. They do not always make sense and they are not always accurate. But I think it is important because like he made some statements about his ex-wives that are completely false. But we'll get to those when we get to those. I was about to say, you you can't really believe everything they say. Mm -mm. (laughs) He has a little bit of a victim complex. So I don't know if Thomas Ridgway told his kid about having sex with dead bodies i would hope not i would hope not but you know what there have been worse things we've heard about in this podcast this so. is true <laughs> now one thing we do know for sure is that he did wet the bed until he was 14 years old now there are physical and medical issues that can cause this but in the case of gary ridgeway it's believed that the stress and anxiety of the abuse from his mother mixed with the psychological abuse of the stories from his father may have manifested with the bed wedding Unfortunately, Gary's mother thought that the way to handle her middle son wetting the bed was making him strip naked, walk through the house to the bathroom in front of the rest of the family, and then she would bathe him by hand. Whole body. Oh, yeah. He was cured after that, right? Mm. Absolutely. Gary has reported that she wasn't always fully clothed when she did this. And he did tell psychologists that this was incredibly embarrassing. And he began to have fantasies about harming his mother. And some of those fantasies were sexual in nature. So as a preteen, he's already engaging in this dark fantasy life where he wants to hurt his mother, but he's also intrigued by her sexually. Mm -hmm. He wants to love her as a mom, but he also hates her because she is actively hurting him. As an adult, Gary spoke of his mom dressing sexy to go to work at the department store. Now, back then, in a JCPenney or a Oh, what do you call that? Um, Macy's Boscovs. or Wanamaker's Boscovs. Yeah. Back in that day, everything was commission-based. So in any commission-based job, when you are a woman, you dress for tips. You dress because men want to see pretty girls sell them things. I worked in a bar in college. I did it. <laughs> the thing here that makes this different, though, is that Gary told psychiatrists that Mary kind of got off on the men that she knew wanted her and she would tell the boys and their dad about how while she was fitting the men for their suits and like taking their measurements Mm -hmm. that she could see and smell their arousal oh my god and she could smell their genitals and that's weird who wants to do that it's really unsettling it's so gross and like I said, it's it wouldn't be the first time that we discussed a mother bathing her child and touching his genitals. So it's plausible that that is entirely true. Yeah. On the flip side, though, I wonder if the story about how she dressed, because he, he mentions that she dressed, honestly, he says she dressed like a slut. Um, but more on the provocative side was he had a disdain for women for a very long, like his whole life. Mm. But regardless, same time he's gone through all this at home. 
School realizes he's doing pretty bad, and they aren't sure why. He goes to school every day. He seems to be paying attention. So they decide to give him an IQ test. Gary tests at an 80, 82, which would make him below average. Now, most people test within the 84 to 114 range. That is an average IQ. So he wasn't that far below the norm, like not enough to need help mm-hmm. doing things, but a little slower than than most people. And the real issue here was that his mother used this as a means to kind of torment him. She would threaten to put him in an institution for invalids. And because of his insecurity about his intellect, he rarely spoke in school. He was very quiet pretty much his entire life. This quietness was the time when he began fixating on murder. Gary has admitted to a persistent fantasy he had as a child about wanting to punish his mother with a kitchen knife. Some days he dreamed about just scaring her so she'd be, he would just cut her a little bit so Mm. she'd be scarred up and she'd just live and be miserable. Other times he thought about stabbing her. He also said that he thought about humiliating her by raping her as vengeance for abusing the family. And that is something he began thinking about as a child. Now, he was also made aware of the world of prostitution at a young age as well. Tom would point out prostitutes when they were like driving around and walking around and stuff. And he would talk about how they were the scum of the earth and these women do horrible things for money. And Tom talked about them like they were subhuman. And Tom seemed to think that women who dressed too sexy were asking to be raped. And it was almost like he had these thoughts and feelings about his wife, but he was definitely too afraid to say it to her face. You know, these thoughts are all wrong. Right. Like, I'm like, you're talking about these women who dress too sexy and literally your wife walks out the house every day in a tight dress with her titties out trying to get extra tips. Yeah. You know, so it's like there's this correlation here between repressed sexuality, at least among Tom Ridgway, as well as Gary. The other two boys, perfectly fine. (laughs) These two, though... Struggling. As I say, if you if if you hate women, just say you hate women. Isn't that the truth? So one of the Ridgeway neighbors, a man by the name of Bruce Revert, spoke to the News Tribune in 2008, and he spoke about how he did notice that the family was really tight knit. The men all liked to tinker around in the garage. Um, he did notice that Tom Ridgeway would kind of he was very strict and he would like beat the boys, but at the time he didn't think it was anything more than a normal like butt whooping. Mm. So now we hit the second point of the McDonald triad, harming animals. And Gary began to take out his frustrations in the home on small animals. It started with shooting them with BB guns. Then he would cut them open. He claims that once when he was a, like a preteen, he put a living cat in an old refrigerator in order to see how long it would live before it died. Gary claims that he killed someone for the first time when he was a young teenager. He described in detail how when he was swimming in a local lake, he used his legs to hold a younger boy down under the, until the boy drowned. Now, he says he doesn't remember when it happened, but there are several news articles about two little boys who drowned in that same lake when Ridgeway would have been about 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the reason why there's speculation about that. Gary also says that when he was 16 years old, he tried to kill a six-year-old neighbor. He said he saw a little boy near his home, lured him into the woods, stabbed him in the ribs and his side. 
He said the little boy didn't die and the victim didn't tell on him. And when the reporter asked him, you know, he was like, I just want to know what it was like to kill somebody. And of course, that calls into the question. You said three years ago you killed somebody. Yeah, so, so what do you mean you just wanted to know what it was like to kill someone? Unless you, So which one is the real story? Unless he repressed it and just forgot about it for like that moment. I don't know. Who knows? Or maybe it's just a an excuse. But Yeah. So that's one of those like weird stories. But yeah. in the beginning, Gary had trouble with girls. He never really assaulted anyone. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. But he did sort of follow women that he had a crush on. Kind of stalked him a little bit. High school uh, was Thai high school and it was pretty rough for Gary. He ended up getting held back twice. So he was a super senior at 20 years old on graduation. Also during high school, he hit the third element of the McDonald triad, arson. Uh, His high school football coach, which he only did football his ninth grade year, Mm. described him as a somewhat smallish kid, wispy hair, nondescript. Hardly what you want to be known for when you're leaving high school. On top of all the academic failings and the fact that he's struggling in school, his brother Greg was one year older than him and very accomplished. Greg was on student council. He was popular. He was definitely his parents' favorite, and he was a track star. Greg went on to study physics at a well-respected college. All Gary had to show when he left high school was a job at a local trucking company. He started working at Kenworth Trucking Company in Seattle in April of 1969. He'd eventually go back to that job, but realizing that school wasn't for him, after high school, he immediately signed up for the Navy in August of 1969. This seems to be the part of his life when he realized that he could pay for sex hmm. and have the interactions with women that he wanted. But he also still actively hated sex workers. So about four months into his time in the Navy, there is a medical record that shows that he got gonorrhea. He later told a girlfriend that he didn't like Filipino prostitutes because of the contact he had with them in the Navy. And you would think that after contracting a venereal disease from having sex without condoms, maybe you would start using them more often. I mean, that's just a logical thing to do, yes. But apparently, he really didn't do that for most of his life. Eventually, he would start using condoms with the women who he was going to murder. Oh my god, what? I mean... That was it. That's a forensic countermeasure. Yeah. Specifically not to leave DNA behind. Yeah. I mean, I get the point. But, but that's really the main reason why. That's so fucking stupid. I hate you so much. So stupid. So when he came back home from his first little tour, <laughs> he ended up hooking up with this girl who he had dated briefly in, college, in high school. Her name was Claudia Craig. This was not a relationship really based on love. The two were very hot and heavy. They were 19 and 21 years old. Mm. What do 19 and 21 year olds do? Have a lot of sex. It's not that unreasonable. Right. So he's coming back from the military. He's only going to be the home for a little bit. What do you get? Like six weeks, eight weeks. So the two of them are just having a good time. He's like, I like doing it out in the woods. And she's like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of that very fun summer, the two of them got married. August 5th, 1970. They moved to San Diego. Gary gets sent on a six-month Navy cruise. Hmm. Um, now, unlike other situations, like in the military, like usually like uh, when my dad was a Marine, he got to tell his family, I'm going to be stationed here. I have an uncle 
uh, and two cousins who are in the Navy. When they go on these cruises, they're not allowed to tell you where they are. And it's kind of weird. Hmm. Yeah. Because, uh, it, I mean, it's for the safety of the people on board. Okay. Um. So, like, my uncle would be like, we're leaving. I'm leaving. And we were like, he's like, I can't tell you where I'm going. Okay. We'll see you when you get back, I guess. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, so, it's very plausible that during this time period, like, Claudia just got married and... She didn't know where her husband was. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. She might have known the name of the boat. So during that time period, that six month Navy cruise, Gary continued having sex with prostitutes across the world. Claudia also had an affair. Okay. Well, By the time he got back, Claudia had moved in with a female friend and a male roommate. Oh. Gary wasn't the happiest, but he was like, listen, we got married. Let's try and salvage it. We've barely had a chance to even be a married couple. So in the summer of 1971, they moved back to Seattle and Gary was discharged from the Navy. He did his two years. Mm -hmm. July 23rd, 1971. He went back to work at the Kenworth Trucking Company. Gary and Claudia moved in with the Ridgeways at first and this did not work because Mary was just as overbearing as she was when Gary was a young boy. So they ended up getting an apartment near the SeaTac airport and they tried to work on things. But later on, Claudia said that even though they moved out of Mary, uh, moved out of Mary's house, her influence over Gary was still too much and that he pretty much controlled him even as an adult. Claudia got fed up and she was just like, I'm moving back to San Diego and she's moving back in with her roommate, who was definitely her boyfriend, who she definitely went on to get married to. <laughs> Um, Ridgeway filed for divorce on September 5th of 71. Claudia just stopped responding at that point. Oh, wow. She was like, she didn't respond to the court papers, didn't go to the hearings. So the court said it with Gary and granted him a divorce in January of 1972. They had one contested asset, which was a 1963 Ford Fairlane, oh. which side note, I didn't know what that car looked like. I didn't know the name. I knew what the car looked like. Mm -hmm. I never knew that was the name of it, but a Fairlane, that's a slick car. Yeah, yeah. I would have fought for that in the divorce. That <laughs> was a bad look. That was a, ooh. I was like, okay, the Ford Fairlane, that's a pretty car. But obviously since Claudia never responded, he got to keep the car out of marriage. He wasn't really happy with how things ended and everyone in his life said that he was really bitter about how Claudia treated him. He said that he still loved her back then, but he also said that Claudia had moved in with several men and become a prostitute, which we know is not true because she legitimately moved in with the guy she was had the affair with yeah. and they got married. So like that's just something Gary made up. It's just weird that, and holds on to as a truth. Yeah, it's just weird that you say that you loved her. You guys had like that one summer. Right. You pretty <clears throat> they pretty much had that one summer and then they had like a couple months back in Seattle. And that's it. <laughs> I mean They were too young. This shouldn't have happened. That's uh, the way it was. Yeah, y'all are teenager. Well you're young. She was teenager and he was twenty one years old. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, shut up. So about halfway through 1972, he meets Marsha Winslow. She was walking near Renton, Washington. And co I'm going to tell you, the direct quote that I heard here was that it said, Marsha was cruising the Renton Loop. And I couldn't get confirmation for what that was, but it sure sounds like an area where people cruise for prostitutes. Yeah, that's what it sounds the like. The phrasing of that, and it was from a local paper yep. in Seattle, and I'm like, I've not, I've seen no other book reference it in that way. So I was like, was Marsha a sex worker? And cause she said that he, he like pulled up to her mm -hmm. and talked to her like he was a cop. And she was like, yo, are you a cop? And he was like, no, 
I wanted to be. I applied and they turned me down. And so I don't know why in this situation, but it, apparently she liked that because they decided to go on a date. Hmm. And she also says that the first time they had sex, he called her Claudia. Oh. I would have also been not happy about this. Yeah. No, no, thank you. Their relationship went relatively fast. Uh, Marsha has been the most forthcoming about Gary's sexual proclivities. It started with him taking her to outdoor sex, outdoor sex locations in South King County. He liked the back roads, wooded areas in Maple Valley, Enumclaw, North Bend, Star Lake, the banks of the Green River. Hmm. And if you are wondering, yes, these are all the same places he would later go and dump his victims. The two moved in together. They got married in December of 1973. Even after they were married, he would demand sex multiple times a day. And not only did they go to those locations in South King County, but he would ask her to do it during the daytime, specifically like with the thought process that they could get caught. He was very into like risky sexual encounters. Uh, he sometimes would walk up to her at home and just like straight up choke her and she would freak out like yeah. anybody would. <laughs> like what the fuck are you doing? Oh goodness. But yeah, no. So I don't know if like that, that in the, the meeting with Marsha and Gary, like he thought he was walking up on a prostitute and she was just like, dude, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. But then she liked it. I don't know. It's very confusing. Huh, okay. Cause if somebody like that's happened to me before where I just been like walking in hair in this area mm. and like a cop is like, what are you doing? And I'm like walking home. And then I'm like, did that cop think I was? I mean, with the pink hair. I didn't have pink hair then. <laughs> I hate you. I'm not a lady from. I'm just, I just thought it was weird. You know what I mean? I mean no, especially like in the kidding. area where I live, it's a, a pretty high traffic area. Yeah. So I'm like, do, do people be walking around here doing that at late night? I don't even know. I'm not downtown. I hope not. I guess maybe. Who knows? It's so weird. But regardless, uh, The relate like so Gary continued to ask her for more stuff that she's really uncomfortable with. Um, he wanted to get into BDSM, specifically bondage, and I guess I should say what that acronym means: uh, bondage and discipline, domination and submission, sadomasochism, and masochism. Gary was specifically interested in bondage. Uh, Marcia didn't have any interest in kinky sex, but she wanted to make her husband happy, and she was like, eh, "It's not hurting anybody." Well, until that one day when he strangled her and it went real far, real fast. And mm. she was just like, nope, we're done. Yep. Now, on the opposite spectrum of this, he's indulging all of these like kinky fantasies with his wife. He's so excited. I can do all the stuff I never got to do before. He begins to compensate his physical urges with the need to study the Bible. He not only read the Bible at home, people at his job said that he would read in the break room. He would try to witness to them at lunchtime. He began going door to door to spread the good word. Uh, He first went to a Baptist church and then he ended up fixating on a Pentecostal church. And that was where he really got into this evangelical preacher and identified with the idea of his wife submitting fully to her husband, as the Bible said. This probably brought about some of the worst times with Gary Ridgway's aggressive sexual interests, at least as far as his marriage went. Now, not to mention the entire time he's married to Marshall, he is still actively visiting and meeting with sex workers. Some of whom later spoke to reporters about very weird interactions they had with him. Um, 
not enough to necessarily report it to the police and get arrested, but scary situations. Um, a woman by the name of Diantha G wrote to Ann Rule in December of 2001 after people learned that Ann was working on the Gary Ridgway story mm-hmm. and told her about when she met him. He, she said that she was, you know, working in the area cause she was trying to survive and he asked her to go to a party and she was very aware of the implication that after the party that he would be paying for her company. Right. Right. Uh, she got worried because he started driving her very far from where he picked up. She used to walk around the Greyhound bus depot in Seattle. She said he was antsy, unsure of himself. And when she asked questions, he started getting angry. He took her to a remote area and showed her a stack of Polaroid photos of women in lingerie. Some of them being asphyxiated and others just looking scared. He wanted her to wear like the same dirty lingerie that the woman in the photos had, but she refused And then he pulled out a gun and forced her to perform oral sex on him. She said he had weird bumps on his penis and she kept gagging because she was grossed out, which made him really angry. And she was sure she was going to get shot. She convinced him to take her back to Seattle, gave him a fake phone number for another friend who needed money. And then she said she saw him on the news and she remembered who he was. Uh, Now, this particular situation happened after Marsha and Ridgway divorced but there are a lot of encounters like this that um, women reached out to Anne mm-hmm. and sent lots and lots of letters about these sort of situations. Like, oh, this happened 20 years ago. This happened 15 years ago. I'm happily married now. But I met him when he was doing this stuff. He, he <laughs> I just saw something funny. Um, can you just imagine just being known for like the guy with a bumpy penis? you know i don't think anybody cares about that i only mentioned the detail because she said she couldn't like go through with what he wanted and it was weird too because she had every intention of having sex with him but he still put a gun to her head and was like do it yeah and she was just like and my thing is like i'm like buddy you didn't have to like put a gun to her head that was like the power trip he was on probably yeah, and then just like the the driving to like the, uh, the secluded yeah, no. location. Like she definitely said at one point they passed like the Green River, and he pointed and was like, "Oh, I work over there." And she thought he meant Kent, mm. like um, the area, the city Kent. Right. But he was legitimately pointing at like where he worked, the building. Like, how ballsy do you have to be to tell someone you're about to victimize? That's my job. I don't know. But of course, because he was picking people who were vulnerable, Mm -hmm. they were afraid to talk about these kinds of things. Right, right. I mean, this woman, Diantha G, didn't feel comfortable enough to tell anybody this story until he was arrested. That's terrible. That's that's usually how it goes, but Mm -hmm. yeah, it is terrible. It has to be that way. It's uh... Now, of course, there weren't always bad times. There were good times in the, the, the marriage to Marsha. They had their son, Matthew, in 1975. As a family, they'd go shooting with their shotguns, inner tubing in the snow, biking, camping, picking blueberries, hunting for treasure at yard sales. That's a pretty constant in Gary's life. All of the women in his life mentioned that he really liked to go to like yard sales and kind of hunt through other people's garbage cans, <laughs> uh, looking for hidden gems. Marsha actually told, like, when she spoke to Belize, she called him a scavenger. I feel like that was a little bit of like a, just a hint of a dig. Just a tiny hint. Just a little dig. Um, But the main issue 
one of the main issues in their marriage outside of the weird sex stuff was Gary's mother. Marsha did not like that Mary controlled their spending money and everything the couple purchased. Mind you, this is your adult son on his second marriage. Sure, he's like 23, 24, 25 years old. But at that age, you should be able to like balance a checkbook by this point. Right, yeah. Mary even bought Gary's clothes. And she would then say to Marsha that the reason why she had to do all of this because Marsha was a bad wife and also that Marsha was a bad mom. Bruh, no. And since Gary was completely useless when it came to going against his mom saying anything, Marsha was just left to deal with this lady. Now, in the late 1970s, Marsha ended up getting a gastric bypass surgery as she'd had a lifelong issue with controlling her weight. She lost a lot of weight, and this sparked massive jealousy in Gary, made him insecure, and the couple began arguing over the attention she was getting from men. Between the more and more aggressive sex, the mother-in-law from hell, Gary's insecurity... On top of the religious submission stuff, Marsha was kind of over the marriage. Um, Plus, Gary would come home from work late and later, and he'd be wet and dirty. Oh. And he would refuse to tell her why. It was all too much for Marsha. And just before their son's fifth birthday in May of 1980, Marsha moved out. And she got a restraining order against him because she said while they were arguing one night, he put her in a chokehold. Which, you know, coincidentally is the same way he killed all of his victims. Yeah. Yep. So Marsha filed for divorce July 21st, 1980. Gary countered in August saying he wanted a divorce too because Marsha was violent too. No comment. (laughs) They sold their home in August of 1980. The divorce was finalized May 1981. Marcia got custody of their son, Matthew, and Gary was required to pay $275 a month in child support payments. Gary told journalists later that he considered killing Marcia then because he didn't want to pay her any money. Not that he didn't want to take care of his kid. Because he absolutely adored his son. Yeah. But it was because it was going to her that he was so angry. Sir, you paid for how many uh, prostitutes? Who knows by that point, uh, okay. man. That's a lot. Okay, so what's the problem with paying this woman that you mistreated this whole time? Eh, well, just like before with Claudia, the story diverges here. So Gary, I feel like he created a timeline where Marsha cheated on him. And I spent a considerable amount of time trying to find any book or article that referenced Marsha saying she cheated on him during their relationship. Right. And she was faithful the whole time. Well, she said that I found nothing. As far as we know. I have found several different articles that said that he told his third wife that Marsha cheated on him. And how are you getting all these wives, sir? Well, (laughs) Marsha seems to hold on to the story that their marriage ended because he tried to choke her multiple times both sexually and then when they were arguing. Gary wrote to journalists, he said that Marsha lost weight and began running around on him. That was your jealousy. And he's told the police and journalists that after having two spouses cheat on him, this contributed to his disdain for women. I personally think that this is a Mm cop-out and a way to justify his actions because he was already sexually assaulting women during... The relationship with Marsha. So if 
Marsha cheating on you is the reason why you suddenly snapped. Why was it happening beforehand? Sure, you weren't killing them yet, but you were sure enough abusing them. It's close enough, yeah. And I'm like, this feels like a natural progression. Absolutely, Of yes. violence for someone who had unrestricted access to his victims. He made the shift from being violent with sex workers to killing them after the divorce. Like I said, he's been fantasizing about killing women since he was a child. Mm -hmm. He said he thought about killing and raping his mom. So, like, regardless, I'm 100% not on board with blaming a woman for a man's choice to murder 49 people. So we're going to move on with that. Hell no. Yes, please. Like, if anything, I might think that the catalyst here is Gary's own feelings of inadequacy making him angrier yeah you said he was insecure because she got that surgery right and which yeah. happens a lot when people have those surgeries mm -hmm. it's just now during the next phase in gary's life a lot happens he devotes a lot of time to his job he rises very quickly through the kenworth seattle plant so much so that he ends up moving to renton in 1993 as a senior employee to help get that place moving he was a truck painter and that seems like a very simple job but it's Apparently very hard work, at least back then it was. You had to have a very steady hand, good attention to detail, and you would transfer the designs from the fiberglass to the truck. It had to match both sides of the trucks. And so he would work with someone who would spray paint the truck, and then he would put the, the logos and the transfers on them. Mm -hmm. This was such meticulous work that it would take those two people hours to do just one truck. And so he was known as being very hardworking, social, friendly, Outside of work, though, it was definitely hit or miss. Uh, early 1981, just before his divorce was finalized, he joined a group called Parents Without Partners, and he dated several different women. They were Their stories were, like, their depositions were included in the court documents, but their names were not. So they're just referenced as girlfriend A, B, or C. He met A in May of 1981. He moved in with her, like, right away in her West Seattle uh, apartment. The same thing kind of happened with his previous relationship. It was highly sexual. Gary insisted they have sex outdoors at all his favorite locations. He wanted to tie her up. She told the court that she allowed it twice. She eventually broke up with him and made him move out of her house in December of 1981. She said he had no real friends and his mother was very prominent in his life. Now, by December of 1981, though, he'd already met girlfriend B. That happened on Christmas Eve while he was at an event for Parents Without Partners. Girlfriend B says that he was upset and told her he had nearly killed a woman. She assumed he meant that he might have gotten, like, rough with someone. No. <laughs> they dated, but they didn't go to all of Ridgeway's favorite spots. Um, Gary ended up buying a house in SeaTac, and they just would meet up at his place or hers. Now, in January, he meets girlfriend C. That's 1982. And B didn't know that this was going on, and she broke, with him, uh, broke up with him a couple months later. In April of, of 82, he's having financial issues. So he rents the house out to the Han family. Gary moves into the garage. He rarely comes home. He spends his weekends at girlfriend C's house. He spends his nights pretty much out cruising for sex workers. And we know he did that because he was arrested in May on May 11th, 1982 for solicitation when he tried to pick up an undercover King County Sheriff's deputy. Girlfriend C knew about that arrest and she told police that Gary was very pejorative about sex workers after that. Like, he really was rude and talked nasty about them. Mm -hmm. Those two dated until 1984. And they were even planning on getting married, but they broke up and Gary had a lot more casual partners. Now, his first murder victim was found in 1982. 
So all of this dating, he is actively murdering women. Right. And between 1984 and 1987 is when Gary began to realize that his sexual compulsions were linked to violence and they were moving away from just violent sex. They've already moved into murder and now he is solidly in necrophilia territory. Um, and the necrophilia isn't just the day he murdered the women. He's also coming back to the corpses multiple times. Oh, ugh. Uh, yes. Sorry. If he can stand it. Mm. If he can stand the smell, he is continuously going back. Right. In right. fact, he told the police that the only reason why he started burying the bodies and dumping them was because he was trying to stop himself from coming back after they were dead. Well, well. He was like, if they're in the ground and they decompose, I won't come back. I if get, I throw her in the river, I won't. I, I can't go get her because she's gone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So I. So sorry to to interrupt. Right. Um. That's a lot. <laughs> that's fucking a lot. Sorry. That's why I said I was like, we have to bring this up in a part. I can't get into this whole man's life in one day. That's a lot. So I had to look up. You're saying all these girlfriends and his wives, and I'm like. What does this guy look like? Basic. He's a basic looking. He is a basic looking guy. It's very similar to the way that I talk about Ted Bundy. Yeah. They are forgettable looking. Yeah. That's why I said when it like, I remember that like, that like really scary mug shot. Right. But then when you look at his old pictures, he just looks like a regular white guy. Yeah. It's absolutely nothing frightening about him. And he wasn't all that big. Nothing unassuming at, at all. Like, That's another factor. Yeah. He was also like a, a thin guy. Yeah. He so like he a... was carrying these big old bodies around doing all this stuff. That was one thing that the, the police were very like, wow. He was a dork looking When guy. they saw him, like when they finally I, met him. I mean... Like I mean, you're a strong person who is thin, <laughs> yes. but like he's he also would have I think been shorter than you too. Okay, see that's what I was trying to say. Like, I'm skinny, but I do like I can lift a lot. <laughs> he also exercised and stuff. I mean, I, he was a painter. Oh, this is true. But yeah, I was just looking at the pictures and I'm like, okay, this is a normal looking dude. You would not assume any of this mm-hmm. stuff happening from him. <sighs> this that's why I said this man was somebody who had a complete double life. So there's also this weird juxtaposition that happens here. Gary was trying his best to be a good dad. His disdain for women steadily increasing. Mm-hmm. Like I said, he started killing in 1982. That we know of. But his son, Matthew, did extensive interviews with the police and said that he had no idea what his dad was up to and that his dad seemed normal. There were roughly several thousand pages of documents that were released that showed these interviews and investigation into Gary and Matthew's relationship. And Matthew said his dad was quiet. He didn't talk a whole lot. He was really into saving money. He had a bad memory, so he would make lists. He told the police about how he and his dad went to yard sales and swap meets every weekend when he had a visitation. They'd buy broken toys and electronics and fix them together. The two rode motorcycles together once he was a teenager. They went camping, played baseball. Gary went to all of his son's games. He never even spoke to Matthew about his feelings about women. Wow. Can you okay? So imagine you growing up, thinking your dad is just as plain normal guy, and then finding out this stuff. Well, yeah, because when him. Gary got caught, Matthew was twenty eight. He was a marine. Yeah, and then I mean, compared to like you're you growing up and your dad's like this complete monster, and then right. and, and then and then like you and you find out he does this stuff, and you're like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense no, now. It was he was completely blindsided. It's like just, even even now, like Matthew's just like. 
Yeah, that's. that's I know wild. that he did it. He admitted to doing it, but like I didn't know that man. Yeah, that that wasn't I my never dad. Never knew that. Yeah, man. that's crazy. Now, according to Gary's confession, he mentioned taking Matthew to one of his visits to a victim, but he left Matthew in the car while he went into the woods. Matthew had absolutely no clue about his father's other life until Gary was arrested November 30th, 2001. This was something that nearly every single person who was interviewed in his life echoed at the time, especially his wife, Judith Mawson. Now, Gary met Judith Lorraine Mawson in February of 1985. She had left a 19-year abusive marriage she was single, living in a tiny apartment, but she was, like, really happy. Mm. Um, she had no intentions of meeting a man, but she decided to go to the White Shutters Tavern because there was an event for parents without partners. She has two daughters from a previous marriage. Gary and Judith danced. Gary told her he was out celebrating his birthday. She was just like, oh, how old are you? And he's like, I'm 36. And she's like, oh, buddy, I'm 40. We definitely can't date. <laughs> what? It's only four years. <laughs> <laughs> they actually spent all night at the bar. Judith was there with one of her friends. Gary was there with one of his friends. They all decided to go out to breakfast at a 24-hour diner at 2.30 in the morning. They went to have coffee at Gary's friend's house. Judith's friend and Gary's friend slipped off to the bedroom. Mm. Gary and Judith ended up sitting on the couch talking for hours, cuddling. Gary spoke happily about his son his job at Kenworth. That first meeting for Judith was like a dream. She had a really terrible childhood. She was also very ill when she was young. She had an even worse time in her first marriage. And Judith describes her marriage to Gary as near perfect. What's wild is that two days after their first date, that first night at the bar Mm -hmm. that went into like morning, Gary is sitting with the green river task force answering about a time in 1982 when he choked a sex worker. Gary told the police he choked her because she had bitten him when she was going down on him. And he just like, after that, he washed his hands of the situation. They showed him pictures of all the other victims. And he was like, yeah, I mean, I've seen them, you know, work in the streets. I might've even met a couple of them, but that's all I know. Mm. The police had to release him. Unlike Gary's other relationships, this one was not aggressively sexual. Um, In the sort of biography memoir that Penny Wood wrote about Judith Mawson, uh, Judith told Penny that their sex life was passionate, gentle. Gary gave her the key to his house pretty early on. Um, She said they did have a strange sort of pre-sex shower ritual, but she learned later that it was because he was afraid of STDs and that he told her that he had gotten an STD when he was in the military. She did not make the correlation that he might be putting himself at risk right now. You know what helps with STDs? Condoms. Condoms. (laughs) Wear a condom. You're fine. Just wear a condom on. You'll be fine. Um, Otherwise, though, she said everything was normal with their sex life. Um, We can assume that's because he was getting his fix of violence and necrophilia elsewhere. Right. Um, In that same book, Gary told the author, Penny Wood, because after she spoke to Judith, Penny Wood also wrote a couple letters back and forth to Gary. And he actually was one, like she's actually one of the few people that he was willing to have a phone conversation with after his confession. It happened in 2006 Hmm. um, where they talked a lot about some of these things. Um, 
He told Penny that he truly loved Judith and he did have less desire to murder people when he was with her. But regardless, the desire was still there and it did continue during their marriage, just not as aggressive aggressively as like between 1982 and 1990. Um, we do know Well, correction, the number we know that he killed during his marriage to Judith was eight women. Hmm. They moved in together fairly quickly. Things were pretty blissful. They had holiday trips with, uh, they had family vacations and holiday trips with Matthew. One day in 1987, police detectives showed up at Judith's job at a daycare, told her they had detained Gary for questioning regarding the Green River killer case, and that they would be holding him for a few days. Judith was in a panic. By the time she got home, Mary Ridgeway's calling her and is like, listen, come stay with us for a couple days. We'll keep you company while they have him in custody. The whole family's outraged. The brothers, the brothers' wives, everybody's like, this is a mistake. It's It can never be Gary. What are you talking about? Right. This time in 1987 when they detained him for a few days was the day when he willingly gave a saliva sample. The saliva sample that would be the thing that connected him to his victims in 2001. But also they like completely searched all the cars, ripped his house apart. Like they did a full like Mm -hmm. warrant situation here. Uh, He went home to Judith. Everyone was relieved. He was like, it was a mistake. That's why they released me. Hmm. Not only was she like, awesome, cool. They were like, let's get married. And they did that. June 12th, 1988. Oh, okay. They've been living together for three years, though. So, I mean, at least it wasn't as rushed as his other relationships. Right. Judith describes it as one of the best days of her life. She says she remembers the hunt for the Green River Killer on TV, but it just didn't register for her. Um, she ended up slipping a disc at day- at her daycare in 1988 when she was picking up a kid. And Gary was this doting husband who took care of her the entire, like, three months she was in traction. That was when they, like, put you in that, like, weird stirrup thing and you got to, like, stay in place forever. Oh, yeah. Mm. Uh, they had to penny pinch without the extra income, but they were both happy. Uh, he re- continued going up at work. 1998, they celebrate their anniversary, which is bittersweet because Gary's father died 1988. He had a lot going on. Congestive heart failure, Alzheimer's, and then he also got pneumonia. Oh, wow. Like, bam, bam, Oof. bam. Fate wanted you gone, Thomas. <laughs> That's a lot of ailments to have at once. Oh, no, you're right. You're right. <laughs> um. Coincidentally, Mary and Judith never had the caustic relationship that Gary's other wives had. Mm-hmm. In fact, Judith would come and help Mary with Tom while he was ill. It's so like interesting in her early years that there's this reference to her dressing so provocative and out there. Because at this later stage in Mary's life, her neighbors associated her with gardening. Huh. And, you know, perhaps people grow and change. But for whatever reason... Mary was a little less overbearing with her daughter-in-law and they had a good relationship. She was still very much doing too much for Gary though. Mm -hmm. Um, Judith was pretty supportive of Mary kind of babying Gary, in my opinion. Like she still handled his checking account and his major purchases. And that went on until Judith handled it. So Gary never handled his money. Oh my God. I don't know why that's so like upsetting for me. (laughs) No, I get No, I get why. Like at this point, bro, it's 98. We are, you're like 40 years old, man. Oh, goodness. And personally, I think there's got to be something to be said about the women in his life infantilizing him. Mm -hmm. 
is definitely something that had to have an effect psychologically on him. Just pampering and just right, and just the spoiled. He's With having spoiled. the women in your life kind of baby you. Yeah, definitely spoiled. Now on August fifteenth, two thousand one, it's Judah's birthday. They go out, they come back, they get a phone call. Mary Ridgeway died. She died from cancer. Gary grieved very openly for his mother, and then just before Thanksgiving of two thousand and one, she got a call from a police officer asking her to come pick up Gary. Gary told her that he'd stopped on the highway to put up his tailgate up. And a cop stopped and then they brought him in for questioning. I'm just going to assume in this situation that love blinded Judith to how absolutely nonsensical that story was. Mm -hmm. Because at this point, they were closing in on him. Now, it's interesting because Gary says that he had no idea. And I'm like, buddy, literally weeks before you got arrested, they pulled you in again. Yeah, you had to have known. You were questioned already for it. But no, like in the interview he did with the the phone interview he did with Penny, he was Mm. like, no, I went to work and it was pretty normal. In fact, he was kind of annoyed that they showed up at his job and like pointed him out and like took him out in cuffs. Actually, I would be too. (laughs) (laughs) You were a murderer. No, I'm just saying, like, don't come to my job with that. Just come to my house. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, they were annoyed that he was annoyed that they came to the job and like embarrassed him. Yeah. Well, November 30th, he gets arrested. In the very grotesque way that the media goes after people, uh, the day that the police, because, okay, you got to figure at this time period, like, people had scanners, mm-hmm. specifically journalists. And so when the call came through that they were picking up Gary Ridgway and that he was the Green River killer, that they were sure of it. The same time, people were following the police because the police were going to talk to Judith. Mm-hmm. She was at home still. And the moment when she heard this is it, the picture exists on the internet. It's a public record of how stunned she was. For that moment on, and the next two years, she was completely dunked into just chaos. At the moment that he was, a, he was arrested, he was 52 years old. He was also never released from police custody from that moment on. There was none of that. You got a good lawyer. We're going to let you go. Right. Yeah. No. Mm, Seattle went nothing of that. During their 14 year marriage, Judith, like I said, he killed eight women that we know of. Very much a stark contrast to the 80 murders he would admit to later and 49 sets of remains that they find. There is reason to believe that he didn't stop seeing prostitutes while he was married Because after he was arrested, he told Judith that he was a sex addict and the police did like a full intense search of the whole house. They took all the cars. Those were impounded and whatnot. Mm. And while Judith was cleaning up the house, she found condoms that were hiding in like toolkits in the garage. Wow. The entire relationship, the couple had never used condoms because she was already over 40 and the likelihood that she was going to get pregnant was very small. Okay. Um, Yeah. So this was definitely the proof to her that he was was cheating. Yeah. But it wasn't proof that he was a murderer. Uh, Even in prison, he tried to protect her. Uh, He had her cash out the IRA to get a new car. Then he told her they needed to get a divorce to protect her identity. Mm -hmm. Judith says at that moment, she knew he was never coming home. The fact that she had to divorce him. That divorce was granted in September 2002. That same year she sold the house because she had they had no money at that point. She was selling her belongings to 
pay for his attorney and to the bills. She was living in her car and getting dressed in a storage unit before her parents were like, come home, please. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, she stopped speaking to Gary in 2002. Uh, his family got angry that she didn't donate all of the house money to Gary's defense fund. But per the divorce guidelines, she was only required to give him 40%. And then I got to live too. So Well, so the house sold for 250000 And after she paid off the balance that was still on the mortgage, mm-hmm. um, she had to give Gary his 40%. And she received $104,000. Gary had hired pretty much the most expensive attorney that he could afford. And his family actually wanted her to give all of the house money to the attorney. She was like, what? No, I have to be able to live. Yeah, exactly. Like, and so then the do? family was like, well, you can't come hang out here anymore. Wow. Wasn't until 2003 when he confessed to 80 murders that she realized that her life with Gary was part of a carefully constructed mask. Partially to show the world and the police that he was a normal man, but I think also to prove to himself that he was more than than what he was doing. Mm-hmm. That he could have a normal life and be a regular person. Right, right. Gary wrote Judith letters in 2004. He was very apologetic. Um, those are in that biography as well. It's called uh, She Married the Green River Killer uh, by Penny Wood. And he said that he made a pact with God in 1985 that if he didn't get caught for his crimes, he would stop and turn over a new leaf. He even described himself as an alcoholic going dry, which is so interesting because forever I have been saying that it seems like murder is a dopamine hit for these people. Mm -hmm. They are getting off on it, specifically the lust killers. Yes. Yes. The, The sexual lust killers are getting high off of murder. And so to see him in his own handwriting say... I was an alcoholic going dry Mm -hmm. in 1985. It's just like very validating. (laughs) Even the weirdos, they know it. They get it. Uh, That pact with God obviously didn't work. He killed at least eight more times that we know of after that. And that was while he was trying his hardest to be a different person. Mm Mm-hmm. He still had to do it. That compulsion was still there. Judith responded to his letters at the beginning of 2004. But after a couple months, she knew she had to cut all ties because it was not healthy for her. Right. The last letter from Gary is dated December 4th, 2004. And I'm going to read it to you. It says, Dear Judith, this letter is long overdue. I spent a lot of time on this. I read books to get the words to say to you. I prayed, asked all kinds of questions. The answers are not in books. It comes from the heart. No book has it and never will. Then it says Matthew 5, 23 and 24. It does not say the verse, so I'm not going to read it. He says, I am sorry for all the hurt I caused you. I am sorry for killing all those young women. I'm sorry for ruining so many victims, families and their friends lives. I'm sorry for all the wrong paths I took in my life, hurting Matthew so much. I am sorry I lied so much to you, causing so much pain and health problems in your life for betraying you and losing your trust. I'm sorry for blaming all my problems on other people in my life, hurting family. I'm sorry for the taxpayers paying all the bills during all these years, all the police, prosecutors, attorneys, psychologists, and everybody else involved. I hurt and killed a lot of God's children. I have sinned against the creator. 
I hope someday you can forgive me. I am sorry for not getting this letter out to you before this time. I pray I did not leave anything out. I hope you will know this comes from my heart. God bless you. Take care, Gary. He never reached out again. And that was honestly for the better. Mm -hmm. Judith says that she spent the better part of the 2000s trying to just rebuild her life uh, and reconcile her feelings about this person who treated her the best that any man has ever treated her, but also destroyed so many people's lives. Yeah. Like I said, uh, Gary has told like several journalists and ruled Pennywood that his feelings for Judith were real and that he still loves her, even though he understands why he had to separate, why she had to separate herself from him forever. She actually wrote a little poem that uh, got included in the most recent update to the, she murdered the green river killer book. Um, and she gave it to Penny the last time they met. And it says he was someone else when he went out the door, all the years being with him, I did not know he had another life by Judith Mawson. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I should mention also that Judith is really happy now. She and her boyfriend, David, are really happy. And in the most updated part of the book, there's a picture of her. Um, and they have a little chihuahua. And at their, they're at the Snoqualmie waterfall in Washington. And that's from 2020. Aww. So, like, Judith is living, like, her best life now, completely separate from this. Which, like, makes my heart so happy because Lord knows that's a lot to contend with yes. as a human <clears throat> being. Could you imagine dating again after that? God. <laughs> Um. Yeah. Oh, no. For once in this podcast, I wanted to end one of my sections on a positive <laughs> note. Because <laughs> uh, next week, sure enough, isn't going to be positive. Mm-hmm. We are going to delve into the side of Gary that was the Green River Killer, the man who murdered so many women he can't remember, to someone who is so manipulative even to this day. There is a be- like okay, so there is a belief among the police mm-hmm. that worked with him in that task force that he knows where all those women's bodies are. But the deal he made with King County specifically said, "Tell us where all the women are in King County." I think the other thirty women are in other I was jurisdictions. About to say, uh, you didn't specify. Uh. Yep. Because here's what would happen if other bodies are found outside of where that first deal was made mm-hmm. the death penalty would come back on the table Ooh. and he talked his he and his fancy lawyer talked their, him out of a death penalty if he agreed to let the police lead the police to as many bodies as he could remember well so he, I, my belief is that potentially he does remember those oh well, he probably well there probably are more bodies and there's more just... bodies and they're in other cities yep. and other counties. Yep. That's probably where they are. You're not going to get those. And so I think he's going to keep that secret because he does not want to be executed. Yeah. Prison might be bad because he was in isolation for a very long time. I mean. it's better than being dead, maybe? Was, I don't know. Was he like 70 now? Yeah, he's in his 70s now. I mean, come on. It's... Just give it up. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, listen, please just give these other people their like... What's the word? Justice. Their closure. Yeah, closure. Because there's roughly three people. And the other, here's another weird thing. And we'll t- maybe we'll talk more about this next week. But he could remember in startling detail where he buried the bodies. Mm-hmm. He couldn't remember their faces. Huh. So if they showed him a picture of the women. He was like, meh. For him, it was all about what he did to them. He remembered what he did because that's what he was getting off on. 
But like I said, we'll talk more about the the details of the crime next week. I, I like the idea that we learned about the person behind the mask this week. Or correction, technically we learned about the mask. Yeah, the mask. We learned about the mask, which is what the serial killers do. They create this persona that they show to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, in his interview with Penny Wood, anybody listening, you should definitely read it. It's a really good book. Um, you learn so much about Judith. Holy cow. She had a horrible life. And still somehow she worked her way through, you know, trying to like live a good life. Mm-hmm. Well, good for her for actually like getting a silver but lining. But at the end of that book is the phone call in transcript oh. that they have. And he talks about how he was consciously trying to be a good husband and how like he had made mistakes with Marsha by being domineering and aggressive with her. Mm-hmm. And he specifically didn't do that. And part of me that like that makes me think. Not all those feelings were genuine. You know what I mean? If you have to construct that personality. Yeah. Is it real? Yeah. Is it really you or are you just really trying? Like, to, like... she got real comfort from him. But I don't know if it was coming from him. Yeah. Or it was coming from. I am being a good husband right now. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? What you thought a good husband would be, right. but not, not what you really were. Yeah. I understand that. Yeah, I get it. I get you. But yeah. So you tell me what spooky thing we're going to talk about tonight. Okay. Uh, you'll see. All right. So Halloween, right? It's like, well, Sun- the best time ever. Whenever this comes out, it'll be Sunday, I think, when Halloween will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Halloween is uh, the 2021 Halloween is a Sunday. It's yes, there's a couple it's, days yes, after yes, this yes, episode. Airs, actually. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. We're almost there. So this week's topic is kind of on par with something you talked about last week. Okay. For uh, our conspiracy crypt episode. Oh. You know, your little demon cat thing. Right, right. Yeah. I <laughs> Listen, I didn't know that, that people think there's a demon cat in D.C. And I thought that was the best thing ever. Yes. Anyway, you can only hear that story if you subscribe to our Patreon. This is true. That's kind of why I brought it up, too. Needless plug. But <laughs> plug it anyway. Necessary plug. <laughs> yeah, here you go. Um, content. Content. <laughs> so this story was brought to my attention by one of... My roller derby teammates. Ooh. Um, her name is Kitty Whipped. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. The fact that like your whole team probably knows all about this. Um, most of my team knows about the podcast. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it was still my coach listens to it too. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. Um, so they were like, "Hey, this is probably something like you should look into because I've been listening to your podcast, so you probably should listen, to, like, look into." So we're this. talking about ghost animals. Sort of, yes nice this is fun so this week it's a cryptid is it a big black dog haven't had a good one in a while um yeah something like that oh wow i was just throwing that out there no That's the only <laughs> one i know about yeah actually it is the, the, the death dog it is uh, a big black dog actually tree lonnie yeah um so this one comes from delaware okay it's a, it's a fence rail dog so now the fence rail dog isn't like most cryptids or yeah. Um, <clears throat> so it's kind of like a ghost, but it's kind of more like a cryptid in different aspects of, you know, 
how you hear the story. <clears throat> so here we go. So this story, like I said, the story originates from the state of Delaware, uh, more specifically Highway 12. It's uh, it's a stretch of road that runs through Frederica and Felton in Delaware. Even in Delaware, it's it's a pretty small state, but you know you're in and you're out. But you know it's it's a it's a nice state anyway. <laughs> for over 100 years, sightings of this hound have been reported. It's said to be incredibly fast, keeping up with cars that ride down the road. So if you're driving a car, you look out your you look out your window, you see this big black dog just keeping up with your car. It's kind of creepy. Um, you can now, like I said, imagine just that a big fast dog just and then it just being so it's it's named the the fence rail dog because it's as tall as a fence rail and fence rail is about like four feet tall so about four feet tall but it is 10 feet long so it's a long ass dog very tall um yeah but something like that just running next to your car at night just gives me a heart attack um It has glowing red eyes, just like you know any other story about a big black dog. Uh, I wonder how many in history there are. There, like every country might have one. Yeah, just about. There seems a they're like signs of death. Yeah, omens, right? Yeah, you can talk about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's like it's guarding the highway. Basically, it, like sometimes it's not running wrong with the cars, but sometimes it's just you know sitting there just watching people uh, that go by. But yeah, it's like um, big black dogs from origin. Like uh, I think Ireland has like a good story about one. Uh, and yeah, like if you hear a story about a big black dog, you're usually uh, harbingers of something bad that might happen soon. Or another story is there are. They're, they're harbingers of like something good that will happen, and you're like, who knows? Just like that, your little demon cat. <laughs> uh, so, but they think. Well, I won't spoil what they think the demon cat really is. No, no. Is no. it is it something similar? Like there, do we people think that this is something that people made up for? No. Oh, good. No, no, no. no. Good, good, good. So there are a few tales that I can uh, I found about. This fence rail dog. Um, I found it on the pinebarrensinstitute.com. They had a few tales there. Uh, one is that it's uh, the vengeful spirit of an outlaw that wa- that took his own life rather than being captured and then you know sent to jail. He wanted to just take his own life. Okay. Uh, another tale is that this is the spirit of a young slave who was killed by a slave master. His body was desecrated and dumped off at what would be the future site of Highway 12. Um, his spirit has come back to search for his resting place. That one was sad. I didn't like that one. Anyway, last but not least, there w- uh, there be a tale. And this one being actually the ghost of a dog. Um whose owner was killed in front of them, and then their owner 
He was chopped up, Jesus. ground up, and fed to said dog. All right. Uh, and then after being forced to eat their own owner, uh, the dog was also killed and then left in the woods. It came back as a ghost and is said to attack anyone who would harm another person in the area. Um, so it's not bad. It's not a bad dog okay. spirit. <laughs> it's just, like I said, it's like a protector. <clears throat> so here is a bit of the truth about this dog. So what's the real story about the, behind the dog, right? Uh, so while people have reported to see it, like the only time they report seeing it, well, most of the time when they report seeing it, they see it like just running around with the car. Okay. Um, like what else does it do? Just run with you? It basically that's it. it it's just having fun. <laughs> I'm just a dog running, having a good time. He's chasing the cars. It's not dog. even a scary cryptid. That's what dogs do. They fucking kill you. <laughs> he's just a dog being a dog. Oh goodness. He's just scary looking because he's black. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. Yes, actually, yes. I meant like black, black. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like the color black. Oh, uh, but yeah. They, but what are color the eyes again? Uh, red. Okay, they're always red. Okay. Yeah, so Thought you see, so. you know, a red eyed, big black dog running with your car. And it's Is it as big as your car? It's about, about as big as, well, no, not as Is my big car. Is a regular dog? It's like. It's a as tall as a kid, I guess. It's four feet tall. Like greyhound tall? Yeah, kinda. Like a okay. little I'd say a little taller than that, maybe. Is but it yeah. chunky. It's a beefy looking dog. Mm. <laughs> so it, most of the other times when people spot this, it's raining as well. Oh. So imagine seeing this in the rain, just a, something running alongside your car. You're not really, you know. Now, do do people say how long? It's running with them. How long it stays? Like, uh-huh. with the, uh, it does. No, I don't think so. It might just vanish off. Oh, that's after my thing. Like if it's like you look and it's gone. Yeah, that could be anything. True. Uh, so most people who like. who see it, they describe it as looking like a hyena. Uh, just. Little, okay. Oh, yeah. That does. Okay. Just a little larger, larger They're and blacker. Scary, actually. Yeah, yeah. Now, funny thing, if you mention, I don't know, like a big black dog slash wolf thing that kind of looks like a hyena to a cryptozoologist, they go, "Oh, you mean the the Shunka Warakin, right?" Okay. And. I don't know what that is. <laughs> and I've seen pictures of this thing. I'm sitting here trying to find a picture, and I'm coming across all the wrong pictures. I searched Devil Dog. I got Marines logos. Okay. I searched Black Dog Delaware. I'm just getting pictures of Black Pomeranians. <laughs> I want to see this actual thing. Okay, look up the word. Look up Shunka. It's S H U N K A. Uh huh. And. Warakin. W A R A K I M. There you go. You'll see pictures of what. Shunka Warakin. That's is this? No, I just okay. These are all cryptid websites. Yes. Now that this looks is looks like a real hyena, though. 
This is where we get into the cryptid part. A hyena mixed with a, a doggy. Yes. The snout is ugh. It's I've seen like I said I've seen pictures of this thing and it's kind of terrifying. <laughs> it's just kind of bad looking. It's <clears throat> a longer snout than a hyena. It looks kind of what fluffier I, tail, similar body structure, yeah, different ears. It looks kind of like what I think a werewolf would kind of look like, just a little bit. Uh, and that's right, you're getting like one and a half cryptids this episode. So shuriken, warken. Yeah, shuriken. Shunka warken. Shuriken warken. Where'd that name come from? Shuk- that is made up. It's not actually. Really? It is from the how do you uh, Iowa? Uh, and other uh, indigenous tribes. Okay. Yeah. That one's never been mentioned to me. So its name translates into uh, carrying off dogs. That so it ate dogs. <laughs> Basically, this Dang. thing this thing would come into like the tribe uh, the tribe grounds like campgrounds or yeah. okay. um and land. It, there you go to land and sorry i was like i don't know You're like tribal grounds campgrounds do we go is it camp? i was like no campgrounds where you take it rb i would say tribal land <laughs> where, where they were living at <laughs> and it would just come up and they take their dogs it's still wow. their dogs um now what was the name of the tribe the iowa spell for me i o way uh I O W A? Yeah, W no. I O W A Y. Oh. Where are you guys from? Um but yeah, that the- might be where we got the name Iowa from. <laughs> it's a it, it it might be. Possibly that we ruined it's by the there, name of an actual tribe. I'm pretty sure it's by there. Yeah. Um Huh. So the first people who documented this were white settlers or as we like to call them, colonizers. Um, <laughs> there, so there's an animal. Uh, you saw the picture of it. It was mm-hmm. like a hyena. It's stuffed, and it was killed by a man named Israel Hutch- Hutchins. Um, you can see pictures of it. It fi- looks ugly. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty ugly. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't look much like a wolf or a dog. Well, kind of like a dog mixed with a hyena, and um. It was displayed in 1886 in his general store, and then in it's the still ni- around because I saw a more recent. Oh picture. yeah, you know, no, it's still around. In the 1980s, uh, it disappeared from his general store. What? Yeah, it just vanished. Oh, soul. Uh, now this animal that he had stuffed, it, they named it a uh, Ringdacus. Okay. Because it was just an un- 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 uh, I can't speak an unidentified creature. Uh, it was later found though in the Madison Valley History Museum. So stolen, like the way that. So I'm not. What's his name from Black Panther was gonna do? <laughs> What's his name? No. You mean Killmonger? Killmonger, how he walked into the the museum and, and he's was like, like I want to take this. This belongs to Wakanda. I'm about to take this. And the lady was like, What are you talking about? So it was stolen like that, but put in a like a museum. Yes. I love that. That's funny. <laughs> I think it had to have been. And so I guess a museum just found it and they, they displayed it. Nah, somebody somebody copped that. Yeah, and they sold it to the museum probably. Yoink. Um but yeah, my point of like bringing this 
this cryptid up is that maybe the people in Delaware aren't seeing like a big black dog ghost, but they're seeing a big black hyena dog cryptid. Well, here's my monster. only issue. Mm-hmm. Tribally, where they found this is nowhere near Delaware. Right, but who's to say that these animals can't travel greater distances? Don't look at me like that. We never see them in Delaware, though. <laughs> Someone would see it during the daytime, though. Listen, Bigfoot has been no, seen during don't. the day. That's why I believe he's real. He's not only seen at night skulking around people's backyards. This is okay. This might be true. <laughs> Wait, I need to the, see the devil dog in the daytime. The dog is seen during the rain, though, so, you know. It can rain during the day. This is true. So you might see it during the day. Who knows? Or it's just, like, who knows? It, it could be just, like, an omen for people to drive safely on the side of or, you know, on the road. Yeah, drive safely. That's why I'm going to scare you. <laughs> Don't look at me. I'm just a dog <laughs> yeah. keeping pace with you while you're going 80 miles per hour on the highway. Exactly. Don't look at me. Watch the road. <laughs> don't, don't worry about what I'm doing over here. Oh, goodness. But yeah, like this was a shorter uh, cryptid I had today. But I found it interesting. So I had to bring it up because it like it combined like a spirit and an encrypted. So yeah. you're like, I just wish there was more about the ghost. I mean, the the story about chopping up the dude and feeding him to the dog so, very cool. So it was the guy that got chopped up. He was apparently a, a he owned a boarding house, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess his tenant just got mad at him one day. Because one of his tenants got mad you know, at him. And then day. Dorothea Puente'd him. <laughs> yeah, basically. Side note, did you see that uh, one of our Discord our ladies, Maggie, said that uh, she saw an article, or she saw something that uh, actually, and Maggie also supports uh, the podcast through Patreon. She really does. She does. Um, and she said that she saw something that said that the Dorothea Puente house was uh, haunted. And she was just like, I know that lady because <laughs> we heard our podcast. Are you serious? But yeah, apparently that that house is haunted. So I did not know like, about that. That was awesome. I mean, she was chopping people up and putting them in the basement. So and then burying so. them. Yeah, she was burying them outside too. Wasn't yeah, she? in the garden. Yeah. Oh my god! Underneath, underneath cement. <laughs> was that the one? Yeah. That it was everywhere in the backyard. Yeah. yeah. Because they found like. Remember at one point the the one police officer thought he had picked up like some roots. Right. And yes. that was like piece of innards yes and he was like oh gross <laughs> and they're like yeah no that's not what you that's not what you think it is that's part of a, a leg yes yeah, somebody's body you're touching right there so yeah i'm like maybe it was you know like that Possibly. i mean what's his name willie picton mm. he fed people to animals this is true <sighs> it is a way of disposing of bodies yes but yeah sorry my part was extra short today huh <sighs> I just wanted to talk about it because it was interesting. Someone recommended it to me, so I obviously <laughs> had to talk about it. You know, those are always nice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What we got to do is have you go to more spooky locations. There you go. Oh my you can tell us stories about it. <laughs> yes. Spooky, scary skeletons. Oh, maybe next year. Next year. Um, hopefully... West Virginia is back opening again, so you can do the Mothman. Listen, okay, I'm totally with you to go down to West Virginia just because I want a picture with that ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that Mothman booty. 
Just whoever made that statue was just having a moment. They're like he I'm, absolutely ridiculous. I know what he's packing back there. He got that cake. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening to our. Strangely, I felt like my part was like long, and yours was short. But Mine was way, short, wasn't this it? This is like our, our our old length, about an hour and forty minutes. Unfortunately, yes. Well, I apologize. Next next week, just wait. There's <laughs> more. Oh yeah, there's a lot next week on my part. Oh. And you all have yourselves a good evening. Yeah, good evening, and have a happy Halloween. Oh yeah, happy Halloween. <laughs>